Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. One of the best parts about practicing exploration medicine is actually getting to go on expeditions. Since many of our contributors and staff spend significant amounts of time in the field, we thought we'd share some of those experiences with you. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Emily Stratton, one of our content editors and a third-year resident in emergency medicine at SUNY Upstate. She recently returned from a four-week tour run by Virginia Tech University of the high-altitude medical clinics in and around the Saganmata National Park region in Nepal. For those not familiar with the region, Saganmata is the native name for the mountain most Westerners know as Mount Everest. She hiked and camped her way through the Khumbu region of Nepal, reaching altitudes up to 19,000 feet. That's almost 5,800 meters. And I hope you're as interested as I am to hear what she has to say about her experience. I'm just going to hit record and we can talk about this stuff. So welcome back. How was it? It was great. Cool. So what did you, what exactly did you do out there? What were you part of? Um, so I did a, um, an uh, elective through Virginia Tech in wilderness medicine. Um, so we visited a lot of rural clinics, um, rural Nepalese clinics on the way up to Everest ER. Um, did some, some hiking every day. Um, it was just a beautiful area too. So like, when you were on this trip, did, did anything, did any kind of medical stuff happen there or was there, did you run into any problems or were there, was everything running perfectly smoothly and you had the perfect trip ever? Well, nothing's really, you know, perfect. Um, so one of our first patients that we saw was um, on our first hike um, from Lukla to, I think it was somewhere between Lukla and Namche. There was a, a pretty young boy, he was like 12 years old. He had a headache and was vomiting. Um, we were concerned for some possible acute mountain sickness. Um, so they were able to descend. We checked on him the next day and he was doing a lot better. But they decided to not go any higher than Namche, that family. Altitude sickness is a well-described but not well-understood condition that occurs at high altitude. By far the most common symptom is a headache, but it also is commonly associated with insomnia, nausea and vomiting, generalized weakness, low energy level, and lightheadedness. It is thought to be related to outpacing the body's natural adaptation mechanisms since rest often cures it and if an individual continues to ascend without resting, these symptoms worsen progressively the higher you go. If the splitting headache, vomiting, and severe fatigue are not enough to stop you, this can progress to brain swelling or cerebral edema, which is a true emergency and can cause permanent brain damage or death. This is known as high altitude cerebral edema. So that was one of the things that we saw. We also saw this um, intoxicated gentleman um, from kind of like the local area, well known to have a drinking problem. He just passed out on a bush. Uh, so we were able to, you know, take him to the nearest town. We had some um, of the trekkers actually help to carry him there. Um, and he woke up a little bit. We gave him some glucose, some honey, and he perked up. So could have been some hypoglycemia as well. So did you, um, so you, did you encounter a lot of altitude sickness, or was it mostly run-of-the-mill things like the same stuff you encounter in an ER, drunkenness and... GI symptoms and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so when we hit like Gorak Shep and above. A frozen lake bed covered with sand and a small settlement at 5,164 meters, that's 16,942 feet, inside Sagarmata National Park. A lot of people, probably at least half of us, had a pretty severe headache, um, some anorexia. Not that I know of anybody was like vomiting or anything. 
um, but it's just pretty mild symptoms. Um, we were pretty fortunate because the other trip before us had a 20% evacuation rate. Wow, uh, 20%? 20% from the Wilderness Medicine Society trip, um, evacuated by a helicopter. Wow. Um, we had a 0% evacuation rate. Why do you think that is? Um, so our instructor thinks it's because she chose some really um, resilient individuals that were pretty fit. And we also, I think, because we took it slowly, I don't know the specifics of the WMS kind of hiking experience, but we took um, a couple of days, especially at the end at each site, like Labuche, um, Dengboche, Labuche, Gorak Shep. Um, we spent two days each site um, acclimatizing. I think that really helped us as well. So hiking up a little slower pace. Right. Um, did you also, was there, what kind of screening did you go through? You're saying that she picked a good resilient crew? Um, so you had to have some hiking experience. Um, you had to talk about what kind of exercise you do each week. So I guess if they were lying, maybe it wouldn't be, you know, as a great selective tool. But you also had to have a clearance by a physician, your primary care provider, saying that you would be able to physically do um, this hike and be able to handle the demands of the, the trip. So you didn't, was there any kind of formal screening or was it just you went to your primary care doctor, handed them a form and he handed it back exactly. to you? Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, about gotcha. It. Okay. So screening and, uh, and slow pace right. seemed to be what... Right. Kept you that's that's interesting. And then also, you know, um, our instructor is very kind of open and honest, and she really wanted to hear about the symptoms. Nobody was that I know of was really hiding any symptoms. So if you did get a pretty severe headache, which most of us did, we went up to the treatment dose of Diamox. So we were on like the 250 BID. Uh, I don't know if that really helped us to prevent, you know, getting to haste, but at least we were kind of recognizing symptoms. Nobody was hiding. Um, we also had, um, we recorded every night um, in a book about what symptoms we were having. Um, we did our vitals. Uh, everybody kind of remained in the 80s. I think somebody the lowest was 75% SpO2 um, in, in Gorak Shep, but that's about it. Um, and then we also had a butterfly ultrasound with us. We mm -hmm. measured um, so optic length and width and everything. Oh, not length, but the width. Um, as well as um, some pulmonary ultrasounds every night to see if there was any development of hay or possibly haze. And I think they're doing a research project on that as well. Well, that's interesting. So uh, you got to do a bit of hiking, a bit of research, a bit of, a bit of medical care. Right. We got to visit a lot of clinics, like in Namche, um, which is about halfway to you know, Mount Everest um, base camp. We spent a day, an extra day, um, with the the provider there, he did his training in India, and now he is the only doctor that works at that Mountain Medical Institute. He's on 24-7. He has nine to five you know, hours, but he's on call if any emergency kind of arises. But we saw that had been evacuated for HAPE from higher up. HAPE is an acronym that stands for High Altitude Pulmonary Edema. It's another altitude-related condition where a person's lungs fill with fluid that's forced out of blood vessels due to lung blood pressure dysregulation. It's quite rare, but it's another life-threatening condition from high-altitude exposure. And we'll discuss these in more detail in later episodes. Um, we also saw some ge just general like things that you would see in the ER. We had, like, there was a patient that was intoxicated, lots of alcohol, um, scabies. There was a GI GERD um, symptoms or chest pain. So that was an interesting experience as well. Hmm. So what, Nanchi is a town. Yes. What's it like there? Um, it's uh, fairly high up, <laughs> very high altitude. Um, it's called Namche Bazaar because they have like the little shop that um, they open up on Thursdays. Um, a lot of local people go and buy their produce and buy buy things that they need for their own shops there. So it's like a, it's a maybe a couple of thousand people live up there. 
I don't even know if that many, but it's the, one of the most populated places on our way to okay. space camp. And when, you, and when you're talking about the clinic or hospital in Nanche, what did that look like? Um, so it's actually a pretty decent building. It's only been around for the past, I believe, five years or so. Um, and it had four beds in the total hospital, if you will. Um, he would just pull patients out of the waiting room, um, see them, and then send them either to admission, which they had a very low admission rate, or just discharge them. They also could follow up the next day, so that kind of explains probably why they had such a low admission rate. So it's, it's basically one doctor working in a four-bed hospital. Exactly. Were there other uh, other people there? Were there nurses, techs, radiologists, lab techs, anything like that? So they have they had radiology, like an X-ray machine. He ran that and he read his own images. Um, okay. They also had a lab. Um, I believe they have a lab technician who works a couple hours a day. But otherwise, if he wants to do like a smear or something, he just does it himself. Takes a look at it in the back. Um, they have a pharmacy, and the guy that runs the pharmacy and the check-in is the same person. I don't think he has any formal medical training, but. It's a really good job and he's happy with that. So. so it's a small building. Very small, yep. That'd be an interesting place to practice. Yeah. Did you find, was, and when you left Namche and went up to Everest Base Camp, was the, were the facilities there similar or were that, was that different? Um, yeah, so we actually stopped in another place too, called okay. Kunde. Um, it was a little bit out of the way, so it's not directly on the trek, um, but it does serve about 8,000 um, patient visits a year. And, and it was built by um, Sir Edmund Hillary in the 70s, I believe. So it's been around for a while. Um, they just do general patient care. They don't really see as many trekkers. They see a lot of local Sherpa people. Um, so that was interesting, you know, as well. Something that he did bring up from that clinic um, is because he does all the deliveries for that region as well. Um, he hasn't had any fetal mortality in the past three years, and he thinks that's because of increased contraception in the region. There's mm. a lot of depot shots being given. Um, the average family, um, Sherpa family, is only having possibly one to two children. A lot of people are choosing not to have kids, so the Sherpa uh, population is definitely decreasing as well. So that's something we learned at that clinic. We didn't see any patients at that clinic with him. It was just more of a tour. So um, fetal mortality is a, big, is a big issue up there. It was before, and, and now it's becoming less. Just because of less births, you said? That's, well, I that's think it's theory. because of less birth, births, and then also there's um, better prenatal care with this clinic. Um, so they, you know, they have patients that are coming in more regularly, whereas before it was people would just show up in labor, or after the local midwife couldn't deliver the baby, they would just show up and you know, have a lot of complications. The impact of altitude exposure on fetuses and pregnant individuals is an active area of research. Since a fetus needs oxygen to grow and already lives in a reduced oxygen environment, the mother, reducing the amount of oxygen available for the mother to breathe could have significant effects on fetal development. Conditions like preeclampsia and eclampsia, which cause high blood pressure and seizures respectively in the mother, are thought to be caused by distressed chemicals released by an oxygen-starved fetus or placenta. A lack of oxygen may also restrict the growth of a fetus in the uterus and lower the birth weight of the infant, which is potentially associated with birth defects, respiratory problems, lower intelligence, and higher rates of obesity and diabetes. Several recent studies of populations living in high-altitude environments like Bolivia, Tibet, and lower but still high-altitude Austria, provide evidence for these effects with even modest exposure to altitude, 
At 1,200 meters, it's about 4,000 feet, there was a detectable difference in birth weight, while altitudes higher than 2,500 meters, which is 8,000 feet, added an increased risk of miscarriages, eclampsia, and preeclampsia. The evidence is incomplete, but it seems to suggest that genetic groups with high-altitude heritage, like Andean natives, Sherpa people, and others of Tibetan ancestry, do not have this risk, nor do pregnant tourists staying only a short time at altitude. However, non-high-altitude ancestry individuals who become pregnant and live above 1,200 meters may have lower birth weight infants and may increase their risk of complications during pregnancy. I'll add some links to papers describing the effects on the website, and if there's substantial interest in this among our listeners, let me know. We can work on a more in-depth episode later. So who staffs these hospitals? Like, who are these people? Um, so like the, the gentleman at the, or the physician at the Mountain Medical, he um, is Nepalese. He just chose to work at that um, clinic, mm. and he just, that's what he's done as his calling. Um, and then for the Kunde Clinic, also kind of more local people um, that trained elsewhere and they've come back because of the calling. So. so they're physicians. Are they, they're not like PAs, they're not MPs? They're no, they're all physicians. Um, I think all of them have trained in India, actually, and then came back. Were they internal med or specialists of some kind? I am not sure. I believe Mount Medical was um, internal medicine. And if they, if, so if somebody needs specialty care, what, where do they go? They would go to Kathmandu. There's also a hospital in Lukla um, that we didn't tour, but that I've heard is pretty large as well. Okay. So. Um, and and then, then Everest ER, you said. So what is Everest ER? Tell me what, is it, what this place is. It just looks like a, pretty much like a tent, like a large tent that gets set up for two months out of the year. Um, they see a lot of, they handle all the evacuations from that local area, from Mount Everest, from um, Lhotse. Um, yeah, and they see a lot, they said the big things that they've seen this year, GI and respiratory with the Kumbu cough, so. And they're doing, most of these evacuations are tourists in the area? Yes, uh, most of them are the tourists that have gone up and done some hikes. Okay, so this is a, a hospital that's set up, or a tent set up at Everest Base Camp. Right. And they're, they're seeing almost all the tourists coming up there, and that's who they're taking care of and right. evacuating. And there is a five-year wait list to become a physician at the Everest ER. Um, and then you have to go through some um, Nepalese training as well, Nepalese health system training. Um, they're staffed by people or physicians from Canada, from Europe, from America, um, just from all around the world. Do they Internal also? medicine, emergency medicine, not necessarily just emergency medicine. Do they also serve the local population up there, or is that not? I believe so. I believe that they see some of the locals as well. And how is that? How how well is that hospital staffed? Is that place staffed? Um, well, we saw at least three attendings there, so it seems like it's much more um, staffed than some of the other regions. Okay. And they do have a sliding scale throughout Nepal um, for payment. So if you're a tourist, you're out of the country, you pay based on like your insurance. Um, versus if you're kind of a local person there, it's kind of a science scale. If you don't make enough, you only pay like 100 rupees, which is like a dollar. Were they busier in that ER than in the other facilities that you ran into? They were actually less busy. They were actually going to lunch. They had a full hour and a half for lunch. Um, we didn't see any patients over there. They were setting up one evacuation for later in the afternoon. I'm not sure of the specifics. 
Um, but compared to like Namche and Mountain Medical, there was the whole waiting room was completely full and they were all kind of the local people that were coming in. And the average visit there was like five minutes in and out, back and forth. You know, they were really just kind of quick turnaround. So it sounds like the, the Namche hospitals are busier with staff with a single doctor catering to local populations right. while Everest ER is catering to tourists, overstaffed, and seeing fewer people. Correct. That would be the assumption that I kind of came across. Are there mechanisms to try to get more of that volunteer force into some of the more long-term facilities there? Like the Mountain Medical Institute? We, we talked about it with him a little bit. Um, he said it's kind of a new a new company, they can't really hire anybody else right now, they can't afford to hire anybody else, and he's barely making enough to survive in that region. And the only reason why he's staying is because he feels like it's a real importance to that area, hmm. um, but they can't afford to really bring somebody else in. So, so who pays Who pays for Everest ER? So Everest ER, I'm not sure. Is that you know? is that a volunteer organization? It's a volunteer, the physicians are volunteers. So they're not paid? They're not paid at all. Okay, so they're... But I don't know who, pays for the other parts of the Everest ER. Interesting. So that, that's that's an interesting niche to discover that the mm -hmm. you know the the Everest ER volunteer physicians that aren't being paid, the Namche physician is being paid if they can't afford to hire anybody else mm -hmm. and they're seeing more people and there's extra staffing. How far away is this from the Namche area? Namche to Everest ER, um, it depends on how quickly you go and how many acclimatization days that you take. Um, so at least one we went to Timboche, so one, two, three, four, five, about a week or so almost away from. Between Namche and Everest? Everest DR. I mean, you could probably do it in four days maybe if you weren't, you know, worrying about, you know, preventing EMS, but. What if you were coming down? You were already climatized up there and you're saying three doctors and. No, that's true. Um, it only takes about, you can do the Everest ER to Namche in one day. It's about 12 miles. No. Oh. A lot of our group did that. We Some of the other group went on and did another separate little hike, but um, you can't do that in one day. Interesting. So there's an excess of physicians not far away, but yes. they're, uh, and they're volunteers, but they're not yes. assisting the local population. Correct. From <laughs> my assumption there. And so. that's, that's an interesting problem. That seems to be a common issue with global health in general, but um, I wonder if there's, I wonder if there's a, there might be something more we can do if there are mechanisms to try to change that. Right, right. So it turns out the funding for Everest ER and a few other clinics in the region comes through the Himalayan Rescue Association. This is a nonprofit NGO founded by an American doctor, John Sko, in 1973. In its own words, it is, quote, a voluntary nonprofit organization formed in 1973 with an objective to reduce casualties in the Nepal Himalayas, especially keeping in view the increasing number of Nepalese and foreigners who trek up into the remote wilderness, end quote. So I spent some time looking into the reasons for this seeming inequality that Emily describes here. And like any healthcare system, the funding and politics involved in the high country of Nepal is complex. There are many stakeholders involved, such as the Nepalese government, the HRA, the Himalayan Trust, which is from New Zealand, the Sir Edmund Hillary Foundation, Canada, and numerous helicopter rescue companies, among others. All of these organizations really do have good intentions and provide care to the best of their abilities. However, coordinating between agencies, establishing communications, and getting resources, personnel, and funding are difficult challenges in any environment, let alone the resource-poor and remote landscape of the Himalayas. Without getting too far into the weeds, the problem largely boils down to money, pride, and politics. 
but it is compounded by who volunteers, why they volunteer, and when or for how long they want to stay. Um, okay, well tell me a little more about, so like what did you see when you were up there? Did you, did you see patients or was this just more of a? It was more of a shadowing kind of a observer okay. ship observership kind of um, situation. We did do um, some ultrasound. Our, we had a fellow, an ultrasound fellow that joined us on this hike. Mm. Um, so he did, um, we saw a patient with a vitreous hemorrhage. It was a non-traumatic vitreous hemorrhage. Um, he was one of the local, he said he was Sherpa um, population. He was a smoker. Apparently they have a, like a pretty high rate of scurvy and vitamin C deficiency, um, which predisposes, really? yeah, which predisposes to vitreous hemorrhage is what the physician at, at Mountain Medical was talking about. Um, so we did an ultrasound, we were able to see that. All he did was just uh, prescribe some vitamin C, discharged him home to come back the next day, even though he lost vision in one eye. So, so who's getting scurvy up there? Everybody, all the population there. The local population. The is. local population. They, I think it has to do with being able to bring fruits to that region um, because everything that's brought to Namche or higher up is brought by, you know, yak, hiking, or helicopter. It's nothing you can just drive up there, and, and there's just not a lot of fruits. So the supply lines are just longer and more difficult, and nobody's, they're not bringing enough up. Right, and then if you do see fruit, it's quite a bit more expensive than other things. Um, so a lot of people that can't afford that, they're just buying rice and beans and eating them at night. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so the issues are not really altitude sickness or mm -hmm. wilderness medicine, it's nutrition deficiencies and birth right. problems. Right, yeah. Oh, that's, that's an interesting one, oh, mm -hmm. okay. So when you were out there, um, tell me about the group that you were traveling with. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a group of 15. Um, most of the group came from Virginia Tech. Um, some were PAs, PA students, uh, a lot of residents um, in emergency medicine. There was a couple of medical students. There was a couple of wilderness medicine fellows and ultrasound fellows. So it was a, it was a very diverse group that we were with. And you, um, did the group stay together when you were hiking? Did you all like bond or was there any kind of, like how did that work out? I think that actually, um, as a whole, we did get along pretty well. There was no drama whatsoever on the actual hike itself. <laughs> That's usually Nobody a good got thing. mad at each other, which was, which was great. Um, there was kind of a faster uh, group, and again, it was a slower group is how we'd uh, kind of separate them. Um, I was a part of the, the yak pack that we called it in the back because we were so slow. <laughs> the slower group, the okay. The slower group. I mean, we, we'd uh, start out in the beginning of the day, you know, meet at 7 a.m., have some breakfast, say, you know, we're going to meet at Namche today, which is about eight miles. Um, we'll see you there. And, you know, the faster group would leave right away, um, often get there two, three hours before the rest of us, um, end up having to just sit around in the cold. But the rest of us kind of took it easy, took some more breaks, um, whenever it's kind of hard to breathe, it was important to sit down for a second. Okay, so like part of the group just like took off, ran up ahead, and right. the other part stayed behind. Did you find that that was like, did that put you guys at risk at all, or was that, a, was that just um, kind of a normal thing? Well, I think it, it stressed out um, a few of the members just because the instructors were in the back with the rest of us that were going slowly. Mm. Um, the people in the front were just kind of on their own. There was a group of five of them. Um, and the scary thing was out of the group of five, a couple had absolutely no hiking experience, which did stress out the people kind of in the back because they, but they kind of pushed themselves, went on ahead. Um, 
But it didn't really create too much tension. It sounds like it. No, everybody worked out. Worked at their own pace. What was the what was the hiking like? What did it feel like up there? Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot of uphill. So. <laughs> That, that makes sense. Yeah, and I actually, there was um, some really nice areas where you were kind of hiking on actually like mountain trails and stuff, but a lot of it were steps, which I actually did not appreciate. Um, they got mm. very slippery, easy to fall, and they're actually harder to hike if you're going up steps, like 300 steps rather than just up a mountain. Um, I don't know who built those steps, but yeah, that was. So it's, it's huge pretty downside. well, it's, it's actually a pretty well developed trail. Yes, it, okay. most of it is. There's some areas that are less so, especially when you get up higher. But as you go to like Namche, even to, I'd say probably up to maybe Labouche, there's a lot of steps. And and uh, so you started off at Lukla. Mm -hmm. You you flew in there? Yeah, we flew in Kathmandu to Lukla. Um, there was a huge helicopter accident um, a couple days before we were there. Oh, that's encouraging. Um, probably, yeah, I read that in the news. Um, one of the pilots was killed, and I believe one of the crew, or not the crew members, one of the passengers was killed as well. Wow. Um, so when we took off from, like, Lukla and beyond, it was, we did see the, like, the remnants of, you know, the plane that had crashed. Okay. That they hadn't really pulled completely off the tracks. And they're investigating, not sure why and what happened, so. Yeah, well, Lukla's a pretty difficult place to fly into. You're in a yeah. mountain valley surrounded by yeah. steep walls with a very short runway. They crashed, though, before they even took off. They started the engines and ran straight into a helicopter. There's some videos on YouTube about it as well. Oh, so wow. they're investigating why. Maybe the pilot thought that there was you know, something wrong with the aircraft, not really sure, but they didn't even get off the... So this was, try. this was a, a ground collision, essentially. It was a ground collision within, like, the first, you know, few seconds of the Is this a busy flight. airport where they're just, like, is there a lot of flights and aircraft moving in now? Um, it's a, definitely weather-dependent, so the weather was good. They would just try to get as many flights in and out of Lukla as much as possible. Um, so often that would be, like, we experienced on the way back to um, Kathmandu, which we never got to Kathmandu. Um, on our way trying to get out of um, Lukla, it was, we had like a spot of an hour and um, somebody landed, a plane landed, and within about five minutes or so, we all loaded up and we left again. So there's not a lot of, you know, rechecks, not a lot of much going on in there. High so. pressure, small facility, right. lots of uh, small windows of safe yeah. travel time, but flexible weather and right. da dangerous areas to fly And it's in. the most dangerous airport in the world because it says you fly out, it's just runway ends and you're, you know, you're right there, so. Interesting, so to, that's, well, there, that makes sense. Um, yeah, we flew to Ramashani on the way back, Ramashan, um, instead of Kathmandu. Kathmandu was a very chaotic mm -hmm. um, airport and often with the weather, they fly to an alternate site. Um, that only was about a seven minute flight or, or so. Um, and then we ended up getting a van ride to Kathmandu from Ramachan, which was miserable, but okay. beautiful at the same time because we saw a lot of the countryside. To give you a sense of what Lukla is like, the airport is at nearly 10,000 feet, that's 2,800 meters. And it has a single 1,700 foot long or close to 520 meter long runway built on a cliff ledge with a steep 12 degree incline. The approach end is a steep drop into the valley below. The other end is a sheer rock wall. Because of this, pilots really only get one chance to land. A go around would likely result in the wonderfully titled 
controlled flight into terrain type accident. In addition to a dangerous runway design, the weather in the mountain region is prone to sudden shifts in wind, updrafts, downdrafts, and rapidly forming clouds over the runway, which compound the difficulties of landing. These rapidly changing conditions often force diversions or delays for incoming aircraft, and airport crew often scramble to get as many planes in and out as possible during the brief windows of good weather. During monsoon season, over 50% of the flights into this airport are canceled. Now, since 2004, there have been eight crashes with over 50 fatalities. Nepal does have strict training requirements for pilots who fly into Lukla, but the European Union has significant concerns about Nepal air safety in general, and according to the BBC, has banned all Nepalese airlines from its airspace since 2013. The crash Emily describes here occurred on April 14th when a Summit Air Let L410 turbojet swerved off the runway during its takeoff roll and impacted a Menang Air AS350B3E helicopter that was just discharging its passengers at the airfield. Three people were killed, including two police officers standing at the helipad and the first officer of the plane. The cause of this veering off the runway wasn't clear, but video recordings show that it occurred almost immediately after starting its takeoff roll. At this runway, there is one prior let L410 crash at the Tenzik Hillary Airport, which occurred while attempting to land during low visibility conditions in 2017. That aircraft lost altitude and collided with a tree, then impacting the ground about three meters below the runway ledge and falling an additional 200 meters down the valley to land on a second ledge, killing two of the three crew on board. In aviation circles, the Let L410 aircraft doesn't have the greatest reputation for safety, but in reality, it doesn't have nearly as many crashes as one would expect from its reputation. And more recently, it's actually one of the safer aircraft flying. One of the other explanations for why this aircraft has so many crashes as it does is because of the environments that it tends to be flying into. It's designed for austere environments, it flies into dangerous runways, in dangerous conditions, you're more likely to have more accidents. That said, this current crash is still under investigation. And I'll put a link to the video and articles on it in case you're curious. And then as you as you hike up out of Lukla, so Lukla's a town, then you hike into Namche, that's a town. Did you, what happened after that? After Namche? Yeah. Kept on hiking, we went to Tingboche, then there was Dingboche, and Labouche, Gorakshep. At Gorakshep we started to camp. Um, it was kind of a mixed bag because it was colder you know, at that time, but it's also, um, they're burning a lot of yak dung mm. in the tea houses, cause a lot of respiratory issues, a lot of sick people are up there too, um, so it's more a protective kind of measure. What um, do you mean by a lot of sick people? Respiratory illness is very, very common, as well as GI illness, especially, you know, up at Gorak Shep. Um, so everybody's coughing. I think pretty much everybody on our trip got the so-called Kumbu cough, because it's the Kumbu Valley of Nepal and you get this hacking cough. Um, a lot of locals say it's kind of similar to like a pneumonitis kind of thing or an irritation of the airways, um, but then also some infectious etiologies as well. Gotcha, okay. The Kumbu cough is a widely described phenomenon with a catchy name, but it isn't restricted to the Kumbu. Most travelers to high altitude regions worldwide experience a similar dry hacking cough, and it seems to be a type of dehydration irritant bronchitis, basically a irritant-induced inflammation in the small airways of the lung. It can be alleviated by wearing masks to decrease lung water loss through breathing, 
and by avoiding other sources of aerial irritants, such as the yak dung Emily talks about being burned for fuel. In the high places of the world, wood becomes difficult to find. Other sources of fuel are expensive to import. For this reason, dried animal dung has become a main source of fuel for both cooking and heating. It contains less carbon than wood, but it has higher levels of carcinogens, and the lower carbon content means it produces large quantities of ash and particulates. This dramatically decreases indoor air quality and probably contributes to the irritant part of the bronchitis that we were just talking about. It also increases the rate of lung and gastric cancers in these regions. It's another low-resource environment health concern, and people living in these environments need fuel. They can't rely on wood, gas, oil, or coal, and they don't often have the resources or technical know-how to build wind, water, or solar plants. That said, the town of Namche has been powered by a small hydroelectric plant since 1995, and nearly every one of the mountain lodges in the Everest region now uses solar and battery power for electricity. Yak dung is still used for cooking and heating, but alternatives are becoming much more prevalent. Um, so they, were, they weren't like sick, dying kind of characters, they're just sort of an obnoxious cough and upper respiratory yeah. cough, cold symptom kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. And the other challenge at Gorak Shep um, was that I found out that my sleeping bag was only rated to uh, 15 degrees and mm. it got down to zero and below. Um, so we kind of <laughs> solved that issue by um, doubling up on tents. So we had three of us in a two-person tent. Um, that also came with some issues. Um, there's a lot of condensation um, that kind of formed, and then it froze. So that in the morning, sleeping bags are frozen, and it was, it was very uncomfortable nights. Interesting. So are there things you would have done differently on this trip if you had, say, planned it again? Yeah, I think the sleeping bag thing might have been better to get a little warmer. Um, I also got, like, a, a bag liner that kind of helped. Um, Platypus was a huge problem amongst the whole group, and especially, you know, even with me. Um, before we even started, one of the girls um, had a platypus water filtration system. It got a hole in it near Lukla, and had she had about two liters in her bag, and leaked completely over everything in the backpack, which is a problem. You don't want to be cold, you don't want to be wet in these environments. So that was a huge fail. Mine tended to um, leak as well. There was no huge hole, but anytime you fold it up, there was a lot of condensation, a lot of dripping, and also, yeah, you just don't want to have that wetness either. So that was something that I wish I had known before. Um, we still used Aquamira, which was pretty decent. So you, so the the water bladder things didn't turn out to be as great as no. you would hope them to be. And yeah. something I'd, I'd recommend for this trip too is um, if you use Aquamira to use the dropper form. I got Aquamira through REI. Aquamira? Aquamira is a um, kind of a the chlorine based um, formula. Um, and you're using this to clean the water. Purify the water. Yep. There we go. That's the word. Um, what's what's uh what do you what would what are you worried about with the water out there? Um, you have to treat all water is contaminated. Um, there's a lot of bacteria, um, viruses, amoeba. I think there's amoebas less common, but a lot of bacteria in the water. So things like Giardia and E. coli, you'll mm -hmm. get like diarrheal Crypto. illnesses from it. Mm -hmm. Crypto, okay. Yeah. But if you don't use the droppers and use the pouring form, um, it's less precise because it doesn't give you an amount to use. And mm. then you either use under or over, which is also a, a problem. So, so water, water, water security is kind of an issue up there too. Yes. Um, what does the local population do for this? I think they just drink the water. They boil it often. Um, 
we did drink some boiled water um, throughout like for tea and everything and nobody got sick from that that we know of so did you ever get sick from the water uh, I don't believe so until I got and I got back to Kathmandu. I don't know what I ate or drank, but I got sick on my flight back. <laughs> Traveler's so, diarrhea curse. Yeah. I was oh, so man. healthy throughout, though. So. The major diarrheal illnesses in the mountain region are related to unfamiliar food and travelers adjusting to the new environment. However, bacterial contamination from human and animal waste dumped into mountain streams is also common. The most common infectious agents are Campylobacter and E. coli. These are common throughout the world. Both are rarely dangerous and will resolve on their own in a few days to weeks. However, since most travelers are only there for a short time on vacation and diarrhea is inconvenient while trekking through cold, barren wilderness, antibiotics may be helpful to shorten the course of disease. So tell me, so then, is there anything else? So the, the sleeping bags, the water things, were there anything else that didn't work? Or um, things that you had that were particularly useful? Electrolyte tabs would have been helpful. I failed to recognize that people were using them regularly, so I only really used them like twice or so throughout the trek. Um, at the end, I started feeling very weak, shaky, feet didn't move exactly as I had hoped they'd move, and I think it kind of led to increased risk of like falls and such. Mm. Um, so I feel like that maybe magnesium was low, maybe potassium was a little low. You know, it's hard to tell, but I think electrolyte tabs would have been a good thing to have had and been taking regularly. Um, some other things, let's see, what was really helpful? The layers were helpful, having enough warmth that you could take off and put on, put like back on as, as well. And having soap was, was helpful. Some people didn't have some soap. That was helpful as you get up there to wash your hands. Toilet paper, it's always something you have to buy and think about. To bring your own toilet paper? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are... I'm trying to think. There's something else I'm sure that was very useful. Oh, trekking poles were very, very useful. I think they were really important to have. Did you... Were you... You found that prevented you from falling or... Yeah, I got close a lot of times, but I was able to kind of dig in and not fall the trekking poles. That's a useful thing yeah. to know. And okay. I was lucky. I had good shoes. I never got blisters from my shoes. I had the Renegade ones. A lot of people had awful blisters that they were taping and wrapping and limping around especially going downhill at the end that mm. was blister central how so what did you do for blister prevention me personally or anybody oh well i didn't really prevent i just wore my smart wool socks and my shoes fit well um but other people um foot powder to keep the areas like nice and dry was helpful um and then just duct taping the areas that were kind of getting hot spots and like stuff before the blister before the blister really formed a couple of people did end up popping the blisters just because of the location and how big they got okay so um so what did what did it feel like how high did you get up there I got about to about eighteen thousand five hundred or 600 or so um, what did that feel close like? to nineteen thousand. um I mean, everybody got a headache. I had a pretty severe headache at times. Um, feeling a little more short of breath. Uh, I couldn't tell if it's because of the hike was hard, but then also just, you know, that last lack of oxygen was probably a, a difficulty as well. And then at night, everybody was so cold all the time that we'd just hike all day, we'd eat dinner, and then as soon as like the you know sun went down, we all went to bed. Were you staying in tents? At the end, we were staying in tents, um, mm. but otherwise we stayed in tea houses. And the tea houses were a little warmer when you were in them? Mm. The local area, like the, the kitchens and stuff were warm, but when you actually got to rooms and everything, it was, it was just as chilly as pretty much as outside, but less wet. Well, that's a start. Yeah. Well, now that you've, now that you've done this, 
Would you go back? Um, I would like to kind of explore like more rural Nepal. I don't know if I'd want to go back to you know the Everest Base Camp. It was a little more touristy. Um, mm. I I don't know. I'd want to help out maybe the local population a little bit more. But like trying to solve some of that overstaffing, right. understaffing issue. Well, very cool. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing that experience. We can maybe put some pictures of your trip up there. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Daniel Levin. Feel free to reach out to us anytime through the website or at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Music is written and recorded by David Keogh. Special thanks to our production team, Sultana Pefli, Emily Stratton, and Jeremy Seeker. As always, thanks for listening, and see you soon.